In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope you're having a beautiful morning. Hope the coffee's warm. Hope you got a little breakfast there in front of you. Hope the kids are doing well, your wife's still talking to you, or hope your husband's still talking to you, regardless of who this is. Also, ladies and gentlemen, before I forget, the new book by me, George Monty, Terror Before the Sacred, is available on Amazon today. The link is in the description. Check it out. It helps me bring you free content. I love doing it for you guys, so help me out. Buy the new book. I think you'll love it. It's going to be a beautiful day today, and hump day, I'm going to help you get over that hump. I hope it's a one-camel hump instead of a two-camel hump. We're going to maintain the same motif that we started with yesterday that we got into about this alien information theory and how the mycelium may, in fact, myelinate. Is that a word? What, what is that stuff, like the myelon sheath around the cords in your brain to help facilitate cognition? Let's go with that. We're going to continue on that theory a little bit today. And what I'm going to tell you today is the stoned ape theory. Is anybody here familiar with that? This is a theory posited by Terrence McKenna quite some time ago, and I think it's making a comeback. I think that there's a lot of truth to what this theory holds so let's jump right in here and let me just flesh out let me just go ahead and paint you the picture that terence mckenna left for us this magnificent work of art that should be gracing the books of our history here we go imagine homo erectus a now extinct species of hominids that stood upright and became the first of our ancestors to move beyond a single continent around two million years ago. These hominids, some of whom eventually evolved into Homo sapiens, began to expand their range beyond Africa, moving into Asia and Europe. Along the way, they tracked animals, encountered dung, and discovered new plants. But that's just the version of our origin story. That happens to be widely accepted by scientists. 
A more radical interpretation of these events involves the same animals, the same dung heaps and plants, but also includes the psychedelic chemical known as psilocybin. In 1992, ethnobotanist and psychedelic advocate Terence McKenna, one of the greatest philosophers, I think, of uh, my lifetime, he argued in the book Food of the Gods, which is a great book, by the way, that what enabled Homo erectus to evolve into Homo sapiens was its encounter with the psilocybin inside the magic mushrooms that grew on the dome. The psychedelic compound within them, that is psilocybin, is what propelled us on our evolutionary journey. This is the foundation of the stoned ape hypothesis. So let's dig in it a little bit deeper. So the theory goes that we as a species have begun migrating out of Africa. And the conditions there are conducive to spores growing on the dung of cattle and then producing these mushrooms. And as we're migrating out of Africa, the climate begins to change from this lush green area. And as it does so, the food sources that we as the hominids of that time are used to eating begin to kind of dry up. And when that happens, typically in today's world or throughout the world, when that happens, the organism, the animal or the individual is forced to find a new food source. So at this point in time, they begin scavenging, they begin looking for something that is edible. Quite honestly, these are dangerous times. Everybody knows that you can pick a little berry, you can pick a wrong type of grass, you can pick something poisonous that could actually kill you. And so while our ancestors are scavenging for food to eat, of course they're going to try little things here and there. And as their food source dried up, they come upon these mushrooms in the dung. And at first they probably try a little bit and they realize that they don't get sick. And in fact, I think it's important to point out what different doses of mushrooms do. And this is actually in the theory. It's posited that microdosing or small amounts of the psilocybin mushrooms will actually improve your visual acuity. You take a little bit more and you become more sexually active. And you take a little bit more and then you begin to go into the world of the abyss, I call it, into the ocean of chaos. However, I truly believe that when you take these higher doses, much like the theory states, you begin to see things that you've never seen before. And it's posited in this theory that that is where our linguistic abilities came from. It's posited that this was the reason for the doubling of the size of our brain. And if you think about it from a logical point of view, let's say there's a group of these hominids that all of a sudden are taking this substance and their visual acuity gets better. Well, they're going to be better hunters. Then they start taking a little bit more and their sexual activity goes up. Well, they're going to breed more. Then they start taking even more and they're going to learn how to be more creative and perhaps even develop linguistic abilities. So let's say that this group, group A, has developed all these skills. They're going to be far superior than group B that no longer has the visual acuity, that no longer has the sex drive, that no longer is coming up with new ways in order to communicate with one another. And they're going to be able to live better, live stronger, and prosper longer.
I know what you're thinking. Well and good, George. Well and good. But is that even possible? Yes. Let me tell you why it is possible. I'm going to read to you a little article I pulled up here. Our gut is inhabited by a diverse community of microbes. This community, composed of hundreds of different species, is essential to our health. It influences our immune system, protects us from infections, and helps us digest food. However, many factors such as drugs, inflammatory responses to infections, lifestyle, they can all perturb the composition of the microbes and decrease its diversity, often leading to disease. Several gut bacteria, including B-theta, rely on dietary polysaccharides. These long chains from plant fibers for their functions. Nevertheless, in the context of a low-fiber diet, B-theta can change its gene expression and metabolism to degrade polysaccharides from its host gut mucus instead. By decreasing the thickness of the protective layer, this shift increases the host's susceptibility to infection and inflammation. Here's a clutch part. Diet is known to cause microbe imbalances underlying a, very, a variety of pathological conditions. However, the effects of low-fiber Western-style diets on bacteria evolution remain unexplored. So the point, the reason I bring that up is just to show you that there's tons of studies being done on how our diet can in fact change the microbes in our gut. The same is true for carcinogens. Think about all the environmental factors that are labeled carcinogens. And these today we know are known for epigenetic changes. The same would be true of a rapid change in our diet. You see, it's McKenna that posited that psilocybin caused the primate's brain information processing capabilities to rapidly reorganize. And that in turn kicked on a rapid evolution of cognition that led to the early art languages, technology, the written language in Homo sapiens. As early humans, he said, we ate our way to higher consciousness by consuming these mushrooms, which were hypothesized grew out of the animal manure. Psilocybin, he said, brought us out of the animal mind and into the world of articulated speech and imagination. Now, if you can think for a minute about some of the caves in Vlasco, or you could think about some of the artwork done by early hominids in, in caves all around the world. It's such a psychedelic experience, not only to think of them, but if you read the accounts of researchers who have gone to these caves and seen the artwork that's in there. And I'll take it even a step further. If you listen to my last podcast, you can hear me talk about how I felt my entire outlook on life was reorganized. And I posit the theory that what's truly happening is a shutting off of the default mode network. And it is causing you to process information in different parts of the brain. What I mean by that is that your speech centers like Broca's area and Wernicke's area, those tend to be areas that are maintained for speech. However, what if you could process speech in the visual cortex? What if you could process vision in Broca's area? What if you could process speech on the correlating, corresponding opposite side of the brain where those centers are? 
I believe that's what you're seeing. You're seeing certain information being processed in different parts of the brain where it's not normally processed. And this particular this particular reorganizing of brain function is what makes creativity possible, right? Creativity is the ability to see things the way they've never been, right? Some people see things the way they are and say, why? The creative person sees things the way they've never been and says, why not? And that is the job of all of the psychedelic priests or warriors or thinkers that came before us. That was the job of the shaman. That was the job of the medicine man. That's why he lived way out on the edge there. And it's important to note too that in in a lot of these tribes in South America or, or around the world, it's always the shaman or the medicine man that takes the psilocybin, that takes the drug, that goes through the ordeal, and then he solves the problem. It's not as if that members of the tribe come to him and then he gives them the ayahuasca or he gives them the mushrooms or he gives them the drugs. He takes the drug. He thinks about it. And then he comes up with the solution to the problem. Now, there was a conference not too long ago where Paul Stamens made a, he made a uh, statement. He says, I present this to you. I want to bring back the concept of the stone ape hypothesis. Stamens said to the crowd, what is really important for you to understand is that there was a sudden doubling of the human brain 200,000 years ago. From an evolutionary point of view, that's an extraordinary expansion. And there is no explanation for this sudden increase in the human brain. The doubling he talked about refers to the sudden growth in the size of the human brain. And he's right. The details are still up for debate. Some anthropologists believe that the brain size of Homo erectus doubled between 2 million and 700,000 years ago. Meanwhile, it's estimated that the brain volume in Homo sapiens grew three times larger between 500,000 and 100,000 years ago. Laying out the tenets of the stoned ape hypothesis that McKenna and his brother Dennis shaped, Stamets painted a portrait of primates descending from African canopies, traveling across the savannas, and coming across the largest psilocybin mushroom in the world growing bodaciously out of the dung of animals. I suggest to you that Dennis and Terence were right, right on, Stamens announced while acknowledging that the hypothesis was perhaps still improvable. I want everybody listening or seeing this to suspend your disbelief. I think this is a very, very plausible hypothesis for the sudden evolution of the Homo sapiens from our primitive relatives. I could not agree anymore. And I think that if we were to do, I think that if, if we could look at the records coming out of John Hopkins, I think you could see this. I can see it in myself. I can see it in my ability to develop linguistic skills, to develop new linguistic pathways. And I think that that's something the majority of people who have been using psilocybin mushrooms would agree with. Okay, now I want to take a little bit of a right turn right here. I want you to think about today's practice of drugs. Maybe whether it's marijuana or whether it is ayahuasca or it is psilocybin or ecstasy or any of these type of hallucinogens or psychedelics. A lot of times people have a spiritual breakthrough, a spiritual experience. And 
Even if you read the Bible and you hear about the burning bush, right? That is posited to be a type of psychedelic plant that had a lot of DMT in it. So here's a question you have to ask yourself. If you were an early hominid or even an individual today and you take a giant dose of magic mushrooms, you have an unbelievable spiritual experience that you can't explain, you would call that God. You would call that an entity calling to you. You would call that a miracle. And if after you've had that unbelievable experience, you were able to describe something that no one in your tribe or your family had ever described before, they would look at you different. If you told them that God came to you and began talking to you, if if you were illiterate and all of a sudden you took this hallucinogen and then you wrote a book, people would look at you like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? And you say, God speaks to me. It's a miracle. It's a spiritual unbelievable moment. It's a moment of unbelievable spirituality. So there's this tie to not only linguistics, to not only visual acuity, but there's this tie to spirituality. And I, I, I have to ask you, like, think about the role spirituality played in our development. Think about the role that God or Akua or Mohammed or Buddha or the stars in the sky, the heavens. Think about the role that spirituality played in our development. And isn't it interesting that you can take 15, 10, you could probably take 7 grams of mushrooms and have a spiritual experience. You could definitely take 10, you could definitely take 14, and you will see God. You will see an alien. You will have a spiritual experience. It works every single time. It is repeatable. Without a doubt, you can take it and you will have the experience. You may be running out in the streets telling everybody there's aliens. You may be naked lying on the floor drooling, but I guarantee you, you will have a spiritual experience. You will be forever changed. That is, without a doubt, non-negotiable, guaranteed to happen at a high dose of magic mushrooms. And if it's doing that, if it is reorganizing, rewiring, remyelinating, sheathing the synaptic pathways or the synaptic gaps and the neural pathways, then I have to believe that the theory is true. I think there's so much evidence for it. And the beauty of it is that we could learn today by continuing to do the work at John Hopkins. I think Tim Ferriss is actually a really big sponsor of a lot of these particular psilocybin experiences. Okay, so now that we've covered a little bit about what the stoned ape hypothesis is, let's talk, let's shift gears here and move over to our friend Francis Crick, who wrote a book called Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature. And I'm going to tell you potentially... A, I don't know if anyone has put these two theories together, but I think they work together unbelievable. Now, for those of you that don't know, Francis Crick was one of the individuals who was responsible for coming up with the model of the double helix. And he theoretically did it while he was on LSD. So I want to read to you a little bit about this book called Life Itself. 
But before I do that, I'm going to tell you about his theory called panspermia, and then I'm going to read from the book. So let me begin by telling you what panspermia is. Okay, so panspermia. This is the hypothesis that life exists throughout the universe, distributed by space dust, meteoroids, asteroids, comets, and planetoids, as well as by spacecraft carrying unintended contamination by microorganisms. Panspermia is a fringe theory with little support amongst the mainstream scientists. Perfect. Mainstream scientists tend to be people that never take risks. Critics argue that it does not answer the question of the origin of life, but merely places it on another celestial body. Okay, I want to be fair here. That's why I'm reading you guys some of the criticisms of what the mainstream thinks. But when you think of the mainstream, think of the mainstream media. Think of the mainstream people. And then ask yourself, how often is the mainstream right? I got two words for you. Copernicus, Galileo. Panspermia hypothesis proposed that microscopic life forms, which can survive the effects of space, such as extremophiles, can become trapped in debris ejected into space after collisions between planets and small solar system bodies that harbor life. Panspermia studies concentrate not on how life began, but on methods that may distribute it in the universe. In 1974, proponents of the panspermia hypothesis proposed that some dust in interstellar space was largely organic, containing carbon, which later proved to be correct. It was further contended that life forms continue to enter the Earth's atmosphere and may be responsible for epidemic outbreaks, new diseases, and the genetic novelty necessary for macroevolution. Three series of astrobiology experiments have been conducted outside the International Space Station between 2008 and 2015, where a wide variety of biomolecules, microorganisms, and their spores were exposed to the solar flux and vacuum of space for about one and a half years. Some organisms survived in an inactive state for considerable lengths of time. And those samples sheltered by simulated meteorite material provide experimental evidence for the likelihood of the hypothetical scenario of lithopanspermia. But hang on, we're just getting warmed up. In October 2018, Harvard astronomers presented an analytical model that suggested matter and potentially dormant spores can be exchanged across the vast distances between galaxies a process termed galactic panspermia and not be restricted to the limited scale of solar systems the detection of an extrasolar object named omauma crossing the inner solar system is a hyperbolic orbit confirms the existence of a continuing material link with exoplanetary systems in November 2019, scientists reported detecting, for the first time, sugar molecules, including ribose in meteoroids, suggesting that chemical processes on asteroids can produce some fundamentally essential bio-ingredients important to life, and supporting the notion of an RNA world prior to a DNA-based origin of life on Earth, and possibly as well the notion of panspermia. Okay, from here, I'm going to move over to the book called Life Itself, written by Francis Crick. This is chapter 11. The title is called, What Would They Have Sent? Here we go. From this point on, we must leave behind quantitative considerations, however approximate, and allow our imagination a somewhat freer hand. 
we shall postulate that on some distant planet, some four billion or so years ago, there had evolved a form of higher creature who, like ourselves, had discovered science and technology, developing them far beyond anything we have accomplished. Since they would have had plenty of time, and it is most unlikely that their society would have stopped at exactly the stage at which we are now, just how much further they would have got, it is not easy for us to guess, though some of their science may have been not unlike ours. Our knowledge of many parts of physics and chemistry is now so complete and on such solid foundations that their main features may already be known to us. This is unlikely to be true for all parts of these subjects. High energy physics, for example, probably still holds many surprises in store. We can expect new methods in physical chemistry, which will make our knowledge of chemical structure and chemical reactions more exact. Even if no radically new principles remain to be discovered, and this is rather unlikely, there is work for generations of scientists discovering in detail how atoms and molecules interact in many different mixtures and in many conditions of pressure and temperature. When we turn to astronomy, astrophysics, and cosmology, we realize that in these fields, much more remains to be discovered. We have already touched on some of the problems. How many stars have planets, for example, and there are also unanswered questions on a grand scale, such as whether the universe is opened or closed. That is, whether it has enough mass so that eventually it will fall back on itself rather than go on expanding forever. Our knowledge of biology is even more primitive. We still have only the sketchiest ideas about the details of embryology, for example, and as we have seen, the course and mechanism of evolution are still only understood in outline and in the origin of life, even less so. Okay, so imagine an alien species or maybe even an advanced human species of some kind, some kind of hominid or, I don't know, maybe they're praying mantises, I don't know. However, in order to get your ideas off of that planet, and a race of beings far superior to us, what if they could send out little bits of code to cover the universe? The same way that the mushroom that infects the ant causes the ant to climb to the top of the tree and then it explodes its spores all over the jungle canopy. Might that be the same process that an alien civilization on another world would use to send its information, its feelers, its, its progeny throughout the world? We've already discussed how in 2018 and 20, in 2008 that the space station has exposed spores to the extreme pressures of space, be it vacuum and the sun flux and solar winds, and those spores remained able to spawn even after the experiment was over. So we know that the spores can, in fact, travel between galaxies via meteorite or planetary dust. So. What if these spores, what if these magic mushrooms are in fact tidbits of information, progeny from other parts of the planet? It would make sense. Like there's even another particular type of theory that claims technology is the alien. 
where did the technology come from? According to the stoned ape theory, technology came from the early hominids who were eating the psilocybin. They are the Promethean flame. They are the creative artists who developed the very technology that is helping us to build space stations. It is the very process. The psilocybin may be the very process which helps our brain or did help our brain to double in size. So might that mean that by consuming the magic mushrooms, you have consumed a type of, I don't want to say parasite because I don't think it's taking over the individual, but I do think it's some sort of, some sort of symbiosis, some sort of, like just think about the way that mycelium helps the root structures of trees. It helps the forest canopies grow. It is an organism that grows to gigantic lengths that, that links the plants, the life, all together why would it not be doing that to us why would it not have that same effect on us especially when you come to the conclusion that we didn't come into this world we came out of this world so we are just as much nature as the trees we are just as much of nature as in fact the root structures of trees are. You could argue that our brains are the root structures of our bodies. Our body is the tree and our brain is the root structure. So I think that it's very possible that these spores, just like in this book, life itself, are in fact the, the agents of panspermia. It makes sense and all those things tie together. You have panspermia that leads the humankind to the doubling of the brain, which leads us to the stoned ape theory. So where do we go from here, folks? What do you guys think? First off, panspermia is an unbelievable theory and everyone should look into it because it's amazing. And I think it just, I think it's the part that McKenna he may have spoken about it, but I think that that's what ties the stoned ape theory back even further than the hominids. I think that the spores were here far beyond hominids. You know, let's think about when the giant asteroid destroyed the dinosaurs. Perhaps there were some spores on that, and that's what led to these little mammal-type hominid becoming so great. Maybe that's what the climate changed and all the... Mushrooms on the dung began forming. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, it's a fascinating theory. And I think that the real gold in the future is tying theories together. Here we are in the information age. And I think it's high time that we begin putting these theories together so that we can have a complete picture of the actual history of our species. Also, ladies and gentlemen, before I forget, the new book by me, George Monty, Terror Before the Sacred, is available on Amazon today. The link is in the description. Check it out. It helps me bring you free content. I love doing it for you guys. So help me out. Buy the new book. I think you'll love it. And I don't think our species developed here on Earth. I think that we are in a symbiotic relationship with another species from another planet. That's what I think. I love you guys. It is Wednesday. I hope this gets you over the hump. Let's get up and get at them. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.